Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On May 11th, Fidelity Investments Canada hosted Focus 2023, a day-long event for advisors featuring Fidelity's portfolio managers, subject matter experts, and thought leaders. Sessions ran both on stage in Vancouver to a live audience and from our Toronto studio for a crowd of thousands more online. On today's podcast, we're bringing you portfolio manager Dan Dupont's session from the event, sitting down with host Pat Baldwin. Dan is known for his time managing Fidelity Canadian Large Cap Fund, and today he shares why a focus on downside protection continues to be important. He'll unpack how he's achieved capturing close to one-third of the overall market downside with this fund. Additionally, Dan shares his thoughts on the current market environment and how he is positioning his funds accordingly. This includes shorting opportunities in a Fidelity Global Value Long Short Fund. Dan and Pat also field questions from the live audience, and please note you will hear references to a few slides that were displayed to the room. For more podcasts from Fidelity Canada's Focus 2023 event, please subscribe as they'll be released in the coming days. Or for full video replays of the event available soon, advisors should reach out to their Fidelity rep. And investors should head to fidelity.ca slash the upside and sign up for the upside newsletter. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. The Mets. Wow, yes, you're good. Edwin Diaz. Exactly, yeah. Well done. Didn't he... Show of hands, how many people are Mariners fans? Didn't he play for the Mariners for a while? Show of hands, nobody knows. I think he did, Seattle, there we go. Did he play for the Mariners? He did, yeah, there you go. You played to the home crowd. Not really, no, he plays <laughs> for the Mets now. <laughs> you like the Mets though? Yeah. Yeah, it's all right. You just wanted good music. Well, I like the concept of uh, somebody who comes in and, and uh, helps out when things are a little tougher at the end of a game, so I'll use this music. Oh, kind of fits. Yeah, a little bit. My so kids that gets love us to our first though. question. I always ask you the same first question. You stress downside protection. Yep. Tell me how you do that. Why do you think it's really important in the current environment? Well, I think it's uh, it's always important. I think uh, we'll we'll have uh, probably a decent amount of discussion around why it's, in my view, a little bit more important now. But um, it's important partly because it really keeps you in the game, right? Um, if you invest in a fund that has less volatility, you I think it was... The 31% number came up, so 31% downside capture is based on the monthly data. How much does the fund go down if the market goes down? So if the fund, uh, if the market goes down 10% in a month, it's very turbulent. The fund, on average, will be down about 3.1%. So that's that's the the capture, which keeps you in because you're not stressed out about about what's going on. And you know we we've had a very rapid V bottom in 2020. So if you've been in the industry very, very short amount of time, you might think, well, that was kind of easy. You know, you buy the cheap stocks and they go down and the Fed and the government always saves the day and next time I'm going to do the same, but it's not always like that. So um, it keeps you in, keeps clients calmer. And over time, it is my view that 
that downside capture helps you rebound faster because you're much more uh, easily and, and much more prepared to redeploy into stocks that went down 20, 30% in that downdraft. So mm. it's a process I really believe in that I've done from the beginning that's never really changed much, uh, if at all. And um, I, I'm going to do that for the next 10, 20 years as well. You know, it's interesting. You and I have known each other for a long time now. And one of the things you said early on, in order to beat the index, you got to, I think it was ignore the index. I'm paraphrasing, I'm sure. But uh, how does that play into your whole concept of capital appreciation long term? Um, yeah, it, it's obvious that if you, well, first of all, if you're thinking about one year numbers all the time as an industry, it doesn't work, right? I mean, if you're too stressed out about your, you know, how am I going to do by December, I think it's just too short a period of time to be really be, be able to figure out how to invest in companies that are impacted over three and five years. And if you focus more on three, five, you will do significantly better because you can take advantage of those really stressed people that are really too focused on short-term performance. And that's independent of your process. Some people will have more of a momentum um, uh, process, some will be more value, some will be more contrarian, some will be more downside protection oriented like myself. Um, but over time, the, the longer long-term thinking just gets better and better at helping you outperform these stressed out people who need to move out of a stock because the short, the really short term um, looks bad. And sometimes it's true change, and sometimes it's really just a sh really short term issue that is really stressful. And those are the situations you want to go in, and you just we just have as a, as a group to figure out which ones we want to look at. We actually, uh, you mentioned the 31% downside protection. And for clarification, uh, what that means is that if the uh, something drops 100 bucks, you only drop $31, right. bottom line, right? How did you yep. do that? Um, so for the main thing that I've done is, you know, the process that I follow, people have, have heard it a few times, you know, it's it's focusing on downside by buying quality companies, uh, being patient on price, and not trying to predict the unpredictable, not trying to predict macroeconomics. Um, but the piece on on price is very important. You know, being patient enough to wait for a particular security to get to your price is, I think, the toughest part. I think if people find a great business and they think that it's you know fundamentally better than average. They want to own it, and they'll wait for a, a slightly better price, but they won't wait for a price that would give them a really good return. Um, and so that has forced me to stay away from companies that I really respect, that I, I would really want to own in, in my funds, but didn't, you know, never got to the price I wanted to pay for them. And once in a while, you get shocked, and something happens that is temporary, and a particular security gets um, down in price massively, and then you come in. And if it goes down enough, then you, you should buy a lot at a point where people are really stressed out about it. So um, hence, as you know, you know the, the phrase that I use for my process, which I call aggressive patience, which is you're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. You're in the bushes, you're waiting, you know, you have the big gun and, you know, once the big elephant or whatever you're hunting comes across, you know, you, you take a, a big shot. And so typically, I'm not standing around with, you know, 0.2%, 0.5% positions. It's a slightly more concentrated type of process, um, but we take advantage of the big opportunities. But on the flip side, there's companies to this day that have been managing portfolios for 12 years in large cap and, you know, almost 15 monthly income. And 
and I've never owned them. I love them, but I've never owned them. But maybe one day I will, if they get to the price I want to pay. Are you like Ramona and like Andrew? You have a list right beside your screen, or in Ramona's case, behind her? <laughs> I, I do have a list, um, and depending on the on the mandate, it can be more of a Canadian list. For Canadian large cap, obviously, I need to be at 50% plus Canada, so there's more Canadian companies in that list. Uh, but when it comes to you know North Star and Global Value Long Short, these these names would be more global. Um, and in, in both cases, North Star and, and Global Value Long Short, they would be anywhere, right? Europe, Asia, um, small cap, mid cap, large cap. So that list is bigger, but it is filled with, in my view, slightly better businesses because the world is your oyster. So yeah, I do have lists, but I also have you know analysts, and so um, you know you, you can you should always be ready for anything and know what to own if the market comes your way. Um, so these lists help, but all of, you know, once in a while there's also something from left field that comes. You know, it's interesting. People would characterize you as a defensive investor, and I know from experience you're not always that defensive. But talk about the, the defensive side, because Andrew Marchese said defensive is expensive right now. What are your thoughts on that first? Um, well, I would say so, yes. Defensive, on average, is, uh, is expensive. Some are really expensive. Um, I'm actually even um, short a few expensive defensives uh, that I call that bucket in global value long short. But there's also other buckets that are more interesting in more, the more defensive names. So, um, you know, the more European-based uh, names, some of the even global, very global footprints, um, you know, Nestle-type companies are still fairly priced. I mean, nobody could really argue they're cheap, but they're, they're fairly priced. Um, but I'd say it probably reflects a little bit where we are in the cycle. And um, I guess we could spend a, you know, a few minutes on why def defense is, is a little bit more expensive and the, um, the general argument that you know, this is the most expected or forecasted recession in, in, in history. Um, well, first of all, let's say, what are the odds that there's a recession coming? And you know, the numbers and history tells you there really should be a recession imminently coming, and the, the depth of which we don't really know. But you know, historically, when we have an inverted yield curve, you know, depending on the data you look at, but around the last 50 years, there's been eight recessions, and you know, every time there was a recession, there was an inverted yield curve, inverted yield curve, and every time there was an inverted yield curve, there was a recession. Mm. Um, so it's only eight. It's not a huge uh, database of numbers, but it, it's kind of intuitive uh, that higher short rates and, and lower long rates would choke the economy down to a slowdown or, an econ or a recession. Um, and typically, um, the inverted yield curve is followed by a recession sometime later. Um, it's usually about um, you know, a year later that the recession starts. So the inversion happened somewhere around uh, September of last year. Um, I believe the first, these are really rough numbers because it's an, we need to look at things on average and, and it's just to give us an idea. But, you know, a year later would be, you know, the fall. So somewhere around uh, September, October would be the start of a recession. And uh, it typically lasts a year. So fall of 24 would be when a recession ends. And then typically the market bottoms midway through a recession. And typically on average, the market, well, the, actually the market's never bottomed at a, um, at a higher level than 15 times trailing peak earnings. 
So if we go and we are going into recession, that would mean that if we take the highest number historically, it's, it's 15 times, you know, 197, 198 is the peak gap earnings number on the on the U.S. S&P 500. So um, 15 times 200 would be 3,000. So if we have a real like, you know, uh, a real recession with that, that looks like a real slowdown, um, we could have some turbulence in the stock market. Now that being said, this obviously this time has its differences. It's always different, and one of the things that's different this time is the amount of savings that people had because of fiscal deficits, which have been monstrous, because of monetary policy, which was very, very loose, creating a whole lot of wealth in real estate, for example, and other areas as well, stock market. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe excess savings um, precludes us from going into recession. Who knows? It has been eaten away at. It was probably around, you know, I think Jamie Dimon said it was $2.5 trillion at the peak. Um, Jamie Dion being the CEO of uh, JP Morgan and um, we're probably halfway through that in terms of excess savings generally as, as people just travel I mean, you've probably all noticed that hotels are full airplanes are full restaurants are full so it clearly doesn't feel like a recession but it is in, important to know that there are signs that you know maybe something is coming that would be one the excess savings going away um, you know Canada's seen um, now, the number of people who went into either bankruptcy or reorg this month spiked, um, basically going from the lowest level ever to the highest level ever, which typically doesn't move much. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, we'll see what happens. But I think it's important right now to not be too complacent. We're going to have uh, six months where we have to look at a lot of data and make sure that we see what's happening inside companies because... Um, we need to figure this one out because if we are going into recession and there's more turbulence, then we need to be positioned accordingly. So back to your question, you know, some people look at, have looked at these numbers, they, they're probably a bit more nervous, but there is a way where, that you can overpay for anything, right? So maybe some people are going too aggressively into certain areas of, of defense. Um, interestingly, um, you know, this time around, it seems like people are again going back into what's worked. I mean, you know, I had lunch with, with Mark Schmel, and, you know, he would have a different opinion, but... Um, Slightly. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, large cap tech and um, all of that. I mean, it's if we remember in 08, for those that were around, when it was in this limbo where we weren't sure if we were really going into a tough recession, what happened? Well, oil went to 140 because whatever worked for the, the previous 10 years, people went back to. They went back into the China thesis, oil, uh, the decoupling thesis came up where China was supposed to decouple from the rest of the world completely and the U.S. was going to go into a recession and China was not going to slow down, hence oil at 140. And that worked out for, you know, a quarter and then people realized that was just a fantasy. So I think we have to be careful here to maybe not be too excited about what worked in the last 10 years that people are going back to, which could be um, large cap growth names, which could eventually be, you know, maybe not slow down as much as the rest of the economy, but maybe their growth numbers come back down a little bit and their multiples, which are not cheap at this point, come back down as well. Okay, so we're talking uh, downside protection, we're talking being defensive, and yet, in your tenure, the large cap fund has never had a negative year. We'll, we'll throw up a chart, because what I think is interesting is, for instance, you talk about shooting for elephants. You are offensive occasionally, like you were in 2020 with oils and I think it was financials, right? banks, banks. Banks, yeah. So, yeah, and I, I am very patient and I, I am 
with time, I've been, um, uh, you know, my process has been accepted, and therefore I can be sitting on a little bit more liquidity, some cash, some arbitrage deals that are, you know, lower return than a typical equity position, but lower risk. Um, and like 2020 uh, showed us, sometimes it, it pays a lot, sometimes it pays less. But you know, when the you know tail end of 2018 arrived, I was able to redeploy money as uh, you know people thought the Fed was, wouldn't pivot, and obviously they did. Um, and so that period allowed me to deploy um, cash in those securities. Banks, as you said, in March of 2020 were being sold left, right, and center. There were some very distressed sellers, um, which we haven't had in a while. Uh, and it was, you know, a very short period of time. Oil and oil names in, in 2020, again, you could buy big positions. So that's, that's what I do. I try to zig when the market is zagging. It's, um, frankly, I'm not sure I would invest this way if I was a, like a, just a newbie in the business. It's a very tiring type of process. You're always investing in a way that, you know, when you, people see your new positions, they're always wondering, why would you buy that? Why, I mean, why would you buy Suncor in the summer of 2020, right? I mean, it's just, it sounds ridiculous. Why would you buy a bank in March 2020 when I had owned no banks for years, no oil companies for five years, and all of a sudden I'm massively overweight oil. Um, so in this particular market, again, I'm just waiting for things to come our way. And it's just, you always, you don't look the smartest in the room all the time, but in the end, you typically outperform which is, you know, it's, it's the end goal, but uh, it's not the easiest process to follow. It's not for, for everyone to do as a manager. It's not for everyone either um, as an owner of the fund, because in 2019, you know, 2016, 17 in Canadian large cap fund, the performance was positive, but you know, it wasn't great, 17, 18, 1%. So for a lot of people, it was just, they didn't have the patience to wait for this process to pan out and to show its 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 uh, its strength in the hurricane. Like I, you know, the, one of the analogies I use is, you know, we we have a big boat. It's going a little slower, but it's a really big boat and it's really sturdy. And so, when the hurricane comes, it's kind of fun to watch everybody else flip over. But you know, the three years before, when it was really sunny and everybody's partying and you're there just, you know, driving your big boat, it's kind of boring. You, well, you know, not to overplay the uh, point, throw up the next chart, which is the growth of $10,000 during the time period. And what I think is interesting is look at the numbers that are there. So in 19 um, or 2018, 19, when it was down 9%, you were actually up in the order of 1%. So they paired those numbers on purpose. That's what downside protection does for you. And yet you still way outperform longer term. Yes. But again, it comes from, you know, small periods of time that, where, um, where there's a bit more of a hurricane-type environment, uh, where you can redeploy the cash in, in you know, securities that others are selling, sometimes out of distress. Um, so, you know, these periods are a lot of fun for me. The problem, one of the problems also is I can't really be, look that happy as everybody seems miserable because the market's going down and I'm just picking up <laughs> people's pockets. But you know, so it's just that's it is the process. So yes, you know, when when the market's tough, we can pick up some some bargains, um, and that's how it's been done. And hopefully, I'm I'm hoping for eventually at some point in my career a year where it's so tough in the market that I end up you know down, but we outperform by so much that it really really helps a three year five year number. Um, so we'll see how what the market what gives us. But 
again, you know, back to my point number four, I'm not trying to predict macroeconomics. I'm not trying to predict interest rates or inflation, really, or commodity prices uh, or foreign exchange rates. I'm letting the market come to me. And frankly, when oil went to the minus 30 and oil stocks were really cheap based on a really dire oil price and a really dire economy, you know, it doesn't take a genius to, to add, but it's not the easiest thing to do, right? Because it's so, it looks so bad. It's the same thing when you're in the middle of a real recession, which if we get there, I mean, there's probably a lot of people thinking, well, I'm just going to look at the 2024 EPS numbers. And if there's a recession, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to write it. I'm going to write it out. It's going to be okay. But the problem is some people have never incurred a recession that looks like, you know, the 2001 or the 2008 one where things just get worse and worse and worse. And then every stock you try to buy down 20% goes down another 10% the next day. And it's just tough and tough. So, you know, I'd say, um, you know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, as, I, as one of my <laughs> you know, favorite philosophers said, Mike Tyson. Um, so if we have a recession, I think it's very important to be ready. And even more than that, it's, it's important to have like a really strong uh, plan in place. Okay, a Canadian large cap wouldn't, if you were a youth again, is not a fun you would necessarily enjoy doing. Are you having fun with the global? I didn't say I'm not having fun. I'm just oh. saying like on, on average, but it's just for, for most people, it's just, it's a process that's really difficult to endure um, when the market's doing really, really well. Um, and it's not the most exciting positions. You can't really brag to your friends that, you know, your fund owns Metro and Kushtar because it was bought when there was, a, you know, an acquisition rumor. It's just not, it's not sexy at all. Okay. I'll rephrase the question. Okay. Go ahead. Are, you having, are you having a lot of fun? You've got a fund for the last two years, the Global Value Long Short Fund. Yeah, two years, because in 2022, 68.1% outperformed the benchmark by over 80%. That's got to be fun. Yeah, I got to say that was fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, 2022 was the culmination of the zero interest rate era. We had, you know, people don't, a lot of people don't realize that, but 2008, 2020, uh, even 2021 was a different era. Central banks around the world we're trying to slay deflation, didn't care about inflation. Mm. So in the fall of 20, uh, 2008, we had the first negatively yielding bond, which everybody thought was just really temporary. It was a glitch in the, in, in, you know, the, the treasury market. And then eventually they just kept, you know, it just kept bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually in um, 2020, there were $18 trillion of negatively yielding bonds. So it's, a, it's an issue that just kept building and building and building because central banks were all going to 0% interest rate or negative. A few of them went negative, uh, including Sweden, if I remember correctly. And then all of a sudden in 2020, 2021, the Fed, several quarters too late, realized that, oh, we have to raise interest rates. And then they had to do it quickly. And 2022 was the result of this crazy ridiculous environment where uh, every, anybody could finance anything because money was free. And uh, so that's why this fund was really fun to manage because it's, it's a long short. It's 150-50. I can't short that much. I can maximum 50% of net, net asset value short, but we made two-thirds of our returns on the short side because it just kept unraveling. The, the pipe dreams and the, the ridiculous GameStop situations kept unraveling. So we made a, a decent amount of money on that side. And on the flip side, the really great businesses that were ignored for a long time with high cash flow 
and dividends and you know, the stuff that Don would own, like that finally worked, <laughs> right? Um, and, and so finally, Don and I were, you know, back on, on stage just to do some presentations, finally. Um, <laughs> He's up after you. I you know, know that, I eh? know. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, that was, you know, it went great in the long-only funds, but this fund, the timing of the launch was interesting because it was right before the meme stock craziness. And so I came into the long-short arena just feeling really good about myself, and it got the hell kicked out of me for the first quarter of um, 2021. I learned a whole lot about position sizing, risk management, how crazy the market can get. Mm. Um, I learned uh, that that market basically was even worse than the tech bubble, in my view, based on all the metrics I looked at. And so it was a great opportunity, I thought. But you know, if a stock is worth a dollar and it's trading at 20, you know, if you short it and you make it too large a position and then it goes to 50, it's a problem. Uh, it's still worth a dollar, but it's a problem, right? So that's that's what I learned, is to not be too enthusiastic about finding a stock that's worth a dollar trading for 20. What do you do on the short side? How, how is your approach different? Um, well, it has to be, the approach is very different, first of all, because position sizing is way more important. What you would short is more volatile than things that you would be long on average. As I said earlier, I, I'm short a few securities that are egregiously overpriced in my view, but are pretty stable, defensive type companies. 35 times earnings, um, where earnings are not that volatile, but I just think it's, it's too much. That's not volatile. Um, so that's still a valuation issue, but it's not as volatile. The other buckets, the other places you would look for a short would be balance sheet issues uh, and or uh, operating issues. So if the margin is gonna be cut in half or if um, the balance sheet is eventually gonna become an issue, then you know that could be a good short idea if it's massively overpriced. So rarely you'll have one that goes into the other, so you could have a massively overpriced stock that eventually has a balance sheet issue, which I've, I'm still short one of those that have shorted for much higher. Uh, but there's, um, you know, the the interesting part for me has been that it's a whole new area that it, I didn't look at. Because when things got really, really expensive, I just stopped looking and I was focused on the other end of the market. So that forces me to spend my second shift, I call it, you know, because my kids are, you know, they're all, they're old now and, you know, I was looking for a hobby and they came up with that fund. So now at night, you know, I, <laughs> between nine and midnight, I'm mostly working on, on this fund. Um, which has been a lot of fun. And, um, you know, the, you have, so the, the, the balance sheet issues, they, they, they were non-existent before, by the way. So they, they just started popping up. So it's a new area. Um, you know, people like Jeff in fixed income, you don't talk to them for 10 years when you're an equity investor because, you know, we think we're, we're smarter than them. The issue is when things become real, when there's a big slowdown and balance sheet starts to matter again, equity investors are just not smart enough to figure out what's going on. We're not. Go to the Jeffs. Sure, I get Jeff it. knows how to value things based on downside, for real. Like in the bond universe, for 10 years, you either made 1% or lost 40 in the bond, right? I mean, you know, the bonds of the big consumer staples companies were trading like government bonds, and they were pretty much at zero. We had companies that were negatively yielding bonds. So, yeah, it's been... So basically the process is the same but different. So you look at the same, I simplified for the analyst, balance sheet, operating issues, 
and uh, valuation issues, and that has migrated. There was a lot of valuation issues in 2021. Balance sheet issues are starting to pop up, and as the recession gets closer, if it happens, um, operating issues or margins is going to become a problem, and we'll have more and more of that. So the buckets right now are uh, in the short book, um, some valuation, a decent amount of tech in there, uh, yet, um, <laughs> and uh, more and more cyclical. So the cyclical bucket has become bigger and bigger. And there's the odd, um, uh, you know, staple that's too expensive, and have a few um, Bitcoin-related you know, pipe dreams that even if the price of Bitcoin stays flat, you know, these securities should be down. 80, 90% over the next five years. You know, I haven't looked at your portfolio in a long time, uh, but you used to have stocks that you held for a long, long time. Uh, Canadian large cap, I'm talking about on that side. Metro would be one that you and I talked about many times in the past. On the short side, when do you know to buy back? And how long is that typically? It's a good question, uh, and I am still learning to this day, and I hope to get better over the next 10, 20 years at it consistently. Um, you know, you, you need some quick and dirty rules. So if you're if you've made more than 40% shorting a security, you have to take a really good look because you become comfortable. It becomes crowded. Everybody feels really good about the fact that they've been shorting the security, and eventually they report a quarter that's okay, and the stock goes up 30, 40, 50%. So. Um, you need to really take a hard look at it. Once you've done the work, you can just, you know, take a step back and do a little bit less work. But if it goes down a decent amount, sit down and do, again, a lot of work on, on the position because um, things can get volatile and, you know, short covering can get really, really messy. Um, that's, that's on the stocks that have balance sheet issues mostly. Mm. Um, those that are valuation issues are less problematic. So if, again, you're paying, you know, $20, you're shorting a security at 20 that's worth one. If it goes down to 15, it might go back up to, to 20, but you know, realistically with rates where they are, the, the, you know, the froth in the market is slowly going away. So technically it should only get up to like 1950, then come back down. Uh, in terms of, we only got two minutes left, but I want to make sure that I get this out. What are your thoughts on the balance of the year in terms of what an investor in one of your funds should expect for the rest of the year? Yeah, sure. No idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we don't. We don't invest for a few quarters. I mean, obviously, if data points come out way worse than we thought, recession is actually now the market's going to come down, and I'll outperform, and vice versa. If the numbers come in better, then um, you know I'll do a little worse, and you know, the beauty of uh, Fidelity is you can combine products in the way that you can tilt, but don't tilt too much. So if you're slightly bullish, buy a bit more Mark, um, buy a little less of me, um, you know, so you can you can tilt things. And, you know, I'm more bearish. I'm not, you know, I've predicted 12 of the last three recessions. So, you know, I'm always bearish. That's, that's just normal. <laughs> So people shouldn't listen to me to make their, their opinion about the economy. I think it's I think we're going to recession, it's gonna be tough, and my funds will do well, et cetera. But who knows, right? I don't know. Next I have, year, I have I to know. ask you one quick last question. You are now gonna be in, have an active ETF. Any thoughts on that at all? Um well I, I'm I'm glad that I you know, I've been at Fidelity was it twenty one, twenty two years now. It's been great to be part of 
um, the evolution of Fidelity. We've grown so much. We've done so well as, as, as a group, as a, as a firm in the industry. It's, it's been great to be part of every step of the way. So, you know, I started on monthly income when we came up with the class structure. So monthly income class came out and then managed large cap and, you know, North Star went global. And then a few years ago, um, long short. So alternative funds, which was incredibly exciting. And now it's not a huge difference. It's, uh, you know, for us, the Fidelity makes it very seamless. So it's not adding a minute more of work for me. But I think it's it's fun and interesting to see who else we can bring into the fold as ultimate investors, because I think some of our products are not uh, owned by as many people as, as could be the case out there. Some people only buy ETFs as a practice, and and um, I don't understand about enough about the business to to know how many and 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 and, and exactly why. But I respect that, and I'd love for these people to join um, the fold. And, and if I can help more people, so much the better. Absolutely. Dan, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you. See you next time.